All right, if you would, open up your Bibles to Luke, the Gospel of Luke. It's in the New Testament. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible, it's, it's on page 872. We're in Luke chapter 12, and we're just looking at five verses, but they're quite challenging. We're looking at verses 49 through uh, 53, and the sermon series that we're in is titled, Questions Jesus Asks. And Jesus asks a question here that kind of unnerves us. Uh, it kind of causes us to recalibrate how we see Jesus, what we expect out of him. Because Jesus asks this questions of his disciples and us. He says, do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? Now, before you're tempted to go and throw out those old Christmas cards that say, peace on earth, goodwill to men, you can hold on to them. Uh, Jesus has come to ultimately bring peace, but that will come about with his second coming. In his first coming, we saw that, that as he entered into the world, he didn't, uh, it wasn't a peaceful circumstances. In fact, he was rejected. Wherever he went, there was division, those who uh, trusted in him and, and those who didn't. So the question, though, is a challenging one. Do you think I've come to bring peace on earth? How do you respond to that with regards to Jesus? Uh, May our time this morning allow us to see a more robust, a three-dimensional picture of our Lord and Savior. Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 53. I came to cast fire on the earth. And would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided Father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, you must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word to us, challenging words, and yet words where we do find our hope. Help us to see that. Help us to comprehend what Jesus was saying then, and importantly, what he is saying to us today. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, um, that we may comprehend truly our Savior, um, we pray. Amen. There's a restaurant that I like to go to where I expect a good meal every time I'm there. I don't get to go there very often. It's kind of expensive. It's, it's Bobby Vans in, in Bridgehampton. Maybe you've been there. Every time I go to Bobby's Vans, I know the meal is going to be delicious, well-prepared, just to the right temperature, uh, displayed just magnificently on these plates and, and served in a timely fashion. But there was one time I ordered dessert. The menu comes by, and, and on the menu, I, I don't, you probably don't know this about me, but I made a pact with my wife about 10 years ago that, that every time we look at a dessert menu, and if there's creme brulee on there, my pact is I have to order it. So, uh, and I want you to know I've been faithful to that pact, uh, unless I was maybe on a diet or something. And even when tempted with flourless chocolate cake, uh, I still get the creme brulee, or both. Um, but in this instance... I share, of course. In this instance, I ordered the creme brulee, 
and it came and it, and it laid before me. I took my spoon and I dropped it right in. It did, didn't quite get that crunch though. But I put it in my mouth anyway, and it was horrible. It was as if someone took one of those Morton uh, salt jugs with a spout on it and just poured it in my mouth. It was so salty. I called the server over, and, and she was surprised. I guess she has really high expectations of the kitchen as well. She was like, that can't be. There can't be anything wrong with this creme brulee. I encouraged her, just go try it. She took it back into the, the kitchen because she didn't want to like, munch on it in front of people. But she came back soon after, and she says, you're right. Something's entirely wrong with our creme brulee. My expectations were shattered. It appears this is what happened. Uh, in reaching for the sugar to put on top to caramelize, the chef instead grabbed what? The salt. <laughs> it did not caramelize too well, and it tasted horrible. But I still expect a good meal there, okay? And I still order dessert. All right. Many people who spent time with Jesus... Pretty much, actually, everybody who spent time with Jesus had expectations of him, who he was, and what he would do, the disciples included. Sometimes, though, people's expectations, and even his own disciples, were thrown for a loop. This happens in our passage. Jesus challenged them and challenged us with a, with a question. Do you think I've come to give or, or to bring peace on earth? They weren't expecting that question, I don't think. Did you notice Jesus didn't even give them time to answer, though? He answered it quickly himself. But let's try to guess. If Jesus didn't, did give them time to answer, what do you think they, how they would have responded? Do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? Well, yes, Jesus. We believe that you, you are the Messiah. You're the promised one. You're the, you're the one that the, all of those Christmas cards are all about. Isaiah 9, they would have quoted Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counsel, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And, a, and, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Now, we can rest assured that Jesus is that uh, Messiah. He is the one who fulfills those promises. But the fulfillment that, of that promise that is, we see in Isaiah 9 is yet to come, in, in the age to come. There is a day coming when Christ will return again, and then there will be fullness of peace and flourishing upon this earth as God recreates it in perfection and glory and recreates his people in perfection and glory to dwell on this new earth. But until then, there will be turmoil on the earth. Jesus gives his disciples no time to reply. He answers his own question with words that are hard to digest. Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Jesus wants his followers to be ready. And the way in which we become ready is what we see here in our passage. We see that Jesus shares with us his calling. For it's in Jesus' calling that we understand our own calling as Christians. If we are followers of Christ, we must be prepared for the turmoil that comes wherever Christ goes. 
You know, we can, isn't it true, we, we can falsely tell ourselves, well, because I have Christ in my life, the, my life should be without turmoil. Or we can say, uh, we can falsely tell ourselves that, that we need to build up walls to, to protect ourselves from the evil in the, in the world around us. But the problem is we become paralyzed and self-focused and, and introverted and, and we hide ourselves from the culture around us and we become ineffective in bringing the gospel message to the people Christ has called us to. It's for these reasons that Jesus wants us to understand his calling so we can understand our calling. And callings are important. On January 8, 2008, Howard Schultz returned to Starbucks to run the company that he had once founded and infused with, with um, a great vision and values. Eight years earlier, he had left the company. He spent more time with his family. He was in a kind of a semi-retirement. But Schultz returned to Starbucks with a special calling to purge the company of unhealthy business practices and to reinstill the winning ethos that was once there and the customer service that once had created this great and thriving company. It was a costly and disruptive calling. Costly in that Schultz had to give up his somewhat life of leisure with his family, young family, in order to devote time to to return to this business. It was also disruptive in that he had to bring monumental changes to this company. Not everybody would accept them. Many people would reject them. But he did. It was his baby. He returned. He had the calling. And as the stock price indicates, I think he did a pretty good job so far. We see in our passage that Jesus had a calling. It was costly and disruptive. Uh, We see that there is three aspects of this calling. Did you see them there? First, Jesus came to cast fire than to suffer a baptism and to cause division. What does this all mean? Let's try to figure it out. First, Jesus uh, had a calling, has a calling to cast fire. In verse 49, we read that, uh, that Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. In the Bible, the word fire can have varied meaning. It can, it can refer to uh, the fire of the Holy Spirit. It can refer to as a, as a symbol for God's word or, or for the gospel. But in the Bible, most often, this, uh, the image of fire refers to divine judgment. Jesus was talking about coming in judgment and fulfilling John the Baptist's words about him, the promise that Jesus would baptize with Holy Spirit and with fire. Hebrews 12.29 says that our God is a consuming fire. Phil Riken writes, when he is present in his holiness, God burns with a pure and powerful flame. And that this fire has a twofold effect. It consumes whatever is destined for destruction, while at the same time purifying whatever God ordains to refine. Reichen states, fire always consumes or purifies depending upon the nature of that which it burns. Fire is an instrument of judgment in that it reveals things for what they really are. I don't know if you watch the Discovery Channel. They got a number of shows out on gold mining, right? There's one where they go swimming in the water and they suck up all this silt and they find gold shavings in it. I don't really like that one. Everyone's just always arguing and complaining. It's really kind of... Uh, nobody gets along. But then there's the ones where they're actually mining on land, you know, and I kind of like that one. But what they do is they, they dig and dig and dig and sift through all this dirt, and finally they end up with like a, a, a jar full of, of gold dust. But, 
but it's not pure gold. Every now and then they'll take this gold dust, say like 100 ounces of gold dust, and they'll actually melt it down, and they end up with what? Like 90 ounces of pure gold bar. Now, if someone were to offer you 100 ounces of gold dust or 100 ounces of a gold bar, which should you properly take? The gold bar, because it's already, all, all the dross has been consumed off, all the impurities are gone. You're getting more for your money. Jesus is saying that he's going to have this effect on the earth. The Lord, through his word and through his spirit, is going to act as a fire to cast on the earth. And he will undo those who reject him, but refine those who believe in him. Jesus says in verse 49, he says that um, he would that it were already kindled. That's just a funny way of saying, I wish it was already happening right now. Jesus is longing for this separation of evil from the good. He's he's longing that this would would take place and come to its fullness already. Isn't it true about us too? Don't we long for that day? Don't we long for the day when all evil is purged from this world? Do not parents long for the day when there is no such thing as sexual predators or deadbeat dads? Uh, do not employees long for the day when there's no such thing as cunning, deceitful co-workers or mean, belittling, bossy bosses. We all long for the day in which evil is purged from this world. The problem is, apart from God's mercy and grace in our lives, we have no confidence that we ourselves wouldn't be part of the purging process, that we ourselves wouldn't be consumed off. Which brings us to the second calling of Christ in our passage. Thankfully, for our sakes, Jesus suffers a baptism for us. With his call to come and cast fire, Jesus also shares with us a call calling to a baptism. We see it in verse 50. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now, when we hear the word baptism, what often comes to mind? Uh, usually happy, joyful images of you know, some adults, a male or female, being baptized and being excited about their newfound life in Christ. Or, or just last week, we had an infant being baptized. Parents rejoicing over this covenant child and the promises of God given through baptism. And so usually our image of baptism is like some joyful thing. But Jesus' baptism is a different kind. He's speaking of some sort of baptism that causes traumatic uh, emotional response on his part. Jesus says, how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus is obviously not referring to him being, himself being baptized by John the Baptist. That was in the past. No, he was looking forward to something that is yet to occur, something that was soon to be accomplished, something that was looming over the horizon. The Greek word baptizo um, is used often metaphorically, not so much for the sense of being baptized with water uh, into the faith, but more of uh, metaphorically in the sense of, of being deluged or overwhelmed in a catastrophe. It's a similar image that we looked at a few weeks ago with the cup that Mark talks about, the cup of God's wrath being poured out upon Jesus. 
Jesus is saying that there is a deluge from above, one of fire and judgment that will come upon him. And it must come upon him if he is to fulfill his calling. This deluge of fire and judgment is, of course, the cross that awaits Jesus. On the cross, Jesus bore the deluge of judgment, judgment that we deserve. Now, there are scores of people today who will say, you know, Mark, my God would never judge anyone. But let me present you with this proposition. If your God uh, never judges, then ultimately there will never be any justice. And if there is no justice, there can be no peace. If you claim that God is a God of love and not justice, then in the end, you get neither. Does that make sense? A loving God, therefore, must not overlook even the smallest imperfection or sin in any human being. But then that raises a question, right? If, if this loving God cannot even overlook the slightest sin, then what hope do we have? Well, we have the hope that Jesus speaks of here. Jesus himself has a baptism with which to be baptized with. He came to suffer a baptism. And picture this. What is it that Jesus did for for those of us who trusted him? What was it that took place on the cross? He took upon himself the deluge of all the sins of, of the world. He took it upon himself. As he dies on the cross, he dies uh, in a purification sense. He takes the fire of God's purification upon all the sins that you and I have laid upon him on the cross. And picture this as well. As he is on the cross, he is being divided, father from son. He is being separated from his heavenly father. Jesus, the son of God and God the father, have never before experienced any separation. But in that moment... When that, uh, that moment when the great deluge of sin laid upon Jesus, uh, Jesus was separated from his Father, cut off for us, for the sins of the world. Did you pick up on something? The three aspects of Jesus' calling, Jesus also experienced himself on the cross. The fire of judgment... He experienced the suffering of baptism, the deluge. He experienced being divided from his father. He experienced. Jesus doesn't bring these realities into the world. He experienced them himself. No wonder Jesus said, how great is my distress. Please understand, in saying this, Jesus isn't saying that he has some heightened sense of anxiety. Oh, there's that there, but there's more to it. The Greek wording implies a a focus of mind that comes along with this reality of this baptism. I. Howard Marshall, a commentator, paraphrases his words this way. It's as if Jesus is saying, how I am totally governed by this until it is accomplished. Consider this, as frightening as the prospect was, Jesus was longing to bring us salvation. Earlier in Luke, we read that that Jesus turned from his his ministry out in, in the countryside, and Luke says that he set his face like flint, like steel, to come to Jerusalem. That is, he he resolutely moved towards the city that would sentence him to death. And he looked neither not to the right nor the left. 
knowing that the cross awaited him as he entered Jerusalem. With every day, that day of baptism was looming closer. One commentator points it, points it, says this. He says, The cross was costing him something even before he was crucified. And Jesus, though anguished, did not shrink back. Reichen comments, what a joy. Check this out. What a joy it is for us to see our Savior say this on the way to the cross. Jesus was going there to suffer for our sins, to die in our place, and he would not rest until the job was done. This was Jesus' calling. It's his job given to him by his heavenly Father to suffer a baptism that should have been ours so that God's law and God's justice could be perfectly satisfied for us. You see, apart from Jesus' sacrifice, you can never be saved. But not all people believe that. Which leads to his third aspect of his calling. The calling of Jesus to bring division. Have you ever seen those bumper stickers that say coexist? Um, you know, with each, uh, with, for each letter, there's a, a different symbol from some world religion or, or belief system. I, I'm not bringing this up to pick on anybody. Maybe you've, maybe you've got one of those bumper stickers. I haven't walked through the parking lot lately, so uh, maybe you do. But um, I can't speak for those who have that bumper sticker, but here's kind of what I take from it. The message that is being conveyed in that bumper sticker is, is that, you know what, all religions are, are just the same. So... Um, stop fighting amongst yourselves and just grow up. Realize this truth and the world will be at peace. Many people believe this, that all religions essentially lead to the same God. The comedian Jim Carrey in a 60 Minutes interview said these words. He said, I'm a Buddhist. I'm a Muslim. I'm a Christian. I'm whatever you want me to be. It all comes down to the same thing. You know, I used to believe this myself, and I used to believe that if there was a God, surely it didn't matter which religion you follow, they all end up in the same place at the end. And therefore, whoever touted their religion over another uh, religion um, was, um, was, was causing conflict in the world. They just need to lighten up and get over it and realize that all religions end up in the same place. Maybe you felt this way. Maybe you still hold to this truth. Um, but there's a, an author, Stephen Prothero. He wrote a book. I'm not saying you've got to go read it, but it's helpful. It's called God is Not One. And the subtitle reads, it's kind of a long one, The Eight Rival Religions That Run the World. You like how I did that? Okay. Uh, and Why Their Differences Matter. See, while he's a professor of religion at Boston University, he admits he's really not an adherent of any one religion, but he makes some points in his book that we shouldn't be so naive to just buy into this notion that all religions are essentially doing the same thing because they don't say the same thing. They do not lead to the same God. He says, um, why is this? Because he's saying that, our modern sentiments, which are quick to state that all religions lead to the same God, are rather naive in this sense, that ultimately these various world religions do not, do not, uh, 
do not bring you to the same deity. For instance, in Buddhism, Buddhism, the goal, you know, the goal of Buddhism is to avoid suffering. And then at the end of one's life, if they live the proper life, they, they end up losing their identity. They get merged into uh, an experience called nirvana where you lose personality and you melt into not really a god. It's just like a, a life force or, or energy. Buddhism ultimately really is atheistic. There, there is no real god per se. But that, con- that is in absolute contrast with a number of religions. Consider Christianity. Christianity Christianity says there is a God and he's a personal God. You have a relationship with him. You can never be God, but you can be in relationship with him. And that the, the, the ultimate goal of the work of Christ is, to, is that he suffered. Suffering is a very active and good part of Christianity, right? Uh, and, this, and through his suffering, we experience eternal life. Uh, an experience where we are remade and renewed as individuals in God's presence. These are mutually exclusive truths. You cannot have both at the same time. Prothera points out that we're naive to think that all religions lead to the same point. But it's interesting, there's even religions that try to do this. Perhaps you're familiar with the Baha'i faith, right? They just take all the different religions and they try to soften them up and make them into one religion. Or they're perhaps a Unitarian Universalist. They've been doing the same thing for a little bit longer. But check this out. What we need to see is that this so-called solution of blending all religions into one religion gets you what in the end? Another religion competing against religions. It doesn't bring peace. It adds more fuel to the fire. So the Unitarian Universalist, who proudly states that she's above all this foolishness of other religions because she sees how clearly all the other religions really lead to one God, she's simply offering her religious views. This is stuff she cannot prove. She just believes this. And she wants you to believe it too. And in the end, this solution doesn't satisfy because it adds more conflict to what's already there. Back to Jesus' statement. Jesus said he didn't come to bring peace, but rather division. Why? Because Jesus knows human nature. He knew where he was coming to. Jesus knows that even though he is innocent, people will crucify him. That even though he heals on the Sabbath, religious types will mock him and condemn him. He knows that even though Peter promises he will not deny him, he knows that, well, Peter will. Jesus knows the world into which he came, the world that rejects God, the world that despises holiness, the world that even rejects the grace of God. In John's Gospel, he talked with Nicodemus and he told him about how light was coming into the world and how how he is this light, but uh, the world flees from the light. Why? Because people are dark. People flee from the light because of the darkness within. Jesus knows that his gracious message of salvation uh, is going to divide this world and, and that this rejection that would come would divide the world in two. Now, people are divided over many things. Uh, you have Yankees versus Mets, right? You've got, uh, you've got abstract art versus realism. You've got UFO believers versus non-UFO believers. Uh, you've Even Bigfoot divides people, right? you got people who believe in Bigfoot and people who don't believe in Bigfoot. 
Even people who believe in Bigfoot are divided. You got the ones who say, well, his name's Bigfoot. And you got others who say, no, we got to call him Sasquatch, right? Uh, So this world is full of divisions. Many things divide us. But of all the things that divide, the most important thing to ever divide humanity is Jesus Christ. For in him and through him, you either have peace with God or you do not. You either have your sins wiped clean or you do not. You've either been given a new heart that beats for God or you have not. You either have your name written in God's Lamb book of life or you do not. Jesus once said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. I don't know. That's an insane comment or, or statement, unless it's true. Jesus is saying no one comes to the Father. No one gets to heaven. No one has a relationship with God. Nobody, unless they come through him. Jesus is saying something that is offensive. He says that he is the only way to God. You either believe that or you don't. All the other religions teach some sort of variant that is in conflict with this truth. All the other world religions essentially teach you, essentially, that it is up to you to work your way, to do the right things, to follow all the rules of the religion, and then, well, the deity, well, he's, he's ob- obligated to welcome you into heaven. Christianity, though, says you cannot work your way to God. Everyone falls short. But God in his grace and in his love and in his mercy worked his way down to you. What we see is is all other religions say, work your way up to God. Only Christianity says God worked his way down to lift you up. Only Christianity says that you are purely saved by faith through, through the grace of God given you in Jesus Christ. And even that offends people. People are offended by the truth that you can only be saved by grace. You cannot earn your way to heaven. It must be a gift that offends people. People say things like, are you saying there's something wrong with me? You're saying I got a problem? You got the problem, right? We experience that, don't we? Are you saying that I'm not good enough on my own? That God won't just take me as I am? Well, yeah, he will take you as you are, as you come to Christ and receive forgiveness in him. So for the time being, the world is divided into those who are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and everyone else. Which brings us to some application for our lives here. We're going to finish up with some application. Jesus' calling to bring division in the world becomes our calling. Not that we go out and cause turmoil, but because Christ lives in us. See, wherever Christ goes, there will be conflict. And the the beauty of the gospel is that Christ dwells in his people, in his body, the church, and in individual believers by the Holy Spirit. And so if you are walking in Christ in this world... There will be division. There will be people who reject you just as they rejected Christ. 
Jesus knows that he forces choices. People will either accept him or reject him. And in doing so, they will either accept or reject you. See, Jesus forces people to decide whether he is just really a good moral man or if he really is the Lord of all to whom he must crown. There's no middle ground. The problem is we live in a world that's all about the middle ground. Uh, the, the new virtue that's being esteemed is what? It's tolerance and acceptance. The problem is this, though. If you do not agree with this new virtue of tolerance and acceptance, well, guess what? You're not tolerated or accepted. It's quite odd, isn't it? But that's the truth. But not only is the world divided, homes are divided too. That's what Jesus says in verse 52 to 53. From now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, a son against father, mother against daughter, a daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. I can kind of get that. Oh, never mind. Uh, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, right? Jesus wants his followers to understand how personal the turmoil is going to be. Relationally, there's no tighter unit than the family, than the home. Jesus says that going forward, homes will be divided. Not every home. There's certainly Christian homes in which every person in the household is a follower of Christ. There's great unity there. But for many of us, myself included, we've experienced that reality. Uh, there's two who trust in Christ and, and three who say, no way. Perhaps you've experienced exactly what Jesus is talking about. I believe if you're a follower of Christ, in some ways you have. In my family, it was, uh, it was and is quite hard. When I became an, a Christian at age 29, my mom thought it was kind of nice but she didn't really like how religious I was getting. She said, uh, you know, it's okay if you, you know, start going to church and all that. Just don't get too religious on me. Well, oops, didn't take long. I, <laughs> I spoiled her hopes for me. I once told her how now I had started tithing to my local church, and she went ballistic. You're doing what? You're giving how much? That church doesn't, you don't know that church anything. And then when I told her I was selling my business to go into ministry, she was baffled. She couldn't understand it. And to this day, every few months, I guarantee you, my mom will call me and she'll say, you know, Mark, you were really good at business. You can always go back to doing that, you know. And then my Dale Carnegie kicks in. Dale Carnegie, they tell you that, that um, smile while you're on the phone. And even though they can't see you, the smile somehow comes through. So I just, I just smile. I go, yes, Mom, you're right. I was good at business. Thank you. Um, with regards to spiritual matters, when I point her to Christ, she could care less. In fact, she gets offended when I mention the word sin. She cannot conceive of how anyone would see her as a sinner uh, let alone her own son. After all, I was, she was the one who carried me around for nine months in her belly, right? If you're a follower of Christ, you've experienced this division in some sort of way. Some of you have come to know Christ recently, perhaps not all that recently, and you're married, and your husband and wife just doesn't know what to think of you. 
They affirm some of the positive changes in you, but they're not comfortable with how religious you've become. You try to explain to them, you really haven't become more religious, but now you've, Christ has given you new life and he's changing you. You want to live for him and for his glory. And then you head off for church on Sunday alone, longing for your spouse to enjoy the new life that could be his or hers in Christ Jesus. Longing to share that hope together as husband and wife. It's hard. I know that. I get it. Know this. I pray for you. People in this church are praying for uh, the people who are married and yet their spouses don't believe as well. It's a difficult situation to be in. Know this. Christ knows you're there. He knows what you're going through. Uh, Turn to him and, and find strength in him. Perhaps some of you experienced far worse. You know, maybe you've had a parent disown you because you are now a follower of Christ. That happens all the time with those who are born into Muslim or Jewish homes. I remember a few years back, I met this young, uh, she was, was a Muslim, uh, but she became a Christian. She was young, about 20 years old, and she became a Christian. She came trusting Christ about three months prior. And she said that already her entire family had disowned her. But check this out. God brings every one of his children, no matter what home they're brought out of, into a new home. A home with new brothers and sisters who have the same father and the same spirit. And in this home called the church, there is great hope and healing and and relational strength and flourishing. If you've experienced something like that, be reminded of God's goodness towards you and giving you his spirit and giving you his body to be a part of. But Jesus wants us to expect division. Now, he isn't saying that we should instigate division. I don't know how many times I've talked with people who don't yet believe in Christ and they share these horrible experience about what family members have have done to to them, trying to evangelize them. And in the end, it's just a bunch of yelling in their faces and and anger and and things like, well, you just go ahead and go to hell then. Just stuff like that that Christians bring into their homes, into their families. I'm not saying that we shouldn't share the gospel with our family members, but we need to do it in a way which is loving and kind. We need to do it the same way in which Jesus shared the gospel with people. See, people are already offended enough at Christians and Christianity and the message of Christ, that that they're looking for just the slightest little reason to lash out at you. So we must be careful to tell the truth, but to tell it with great love and compassion. The Bible states that it's God's kindness that leads to repentance. Let me ask you this. When you share the gospel, is it with great kindness and love that you share it? With patience? Longing to see someone come to Christ? Or do you get defensive and lash out and tell people what's true in an angry way? Our hope must be that Christ shines through us with his kindness so that people may repent. And yet know this, even as Christ shines through you, people will still treat you as they treated Christ. They will malign you behind your back. They will call you Bible thumper, they will call, cause you, call you religious wing nut, they will call you one of those whacked out born agains, they will call you all kinds of things. 
The important thing is that it must not be you who is offensive, but rather the gospel, the message of Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 15, he says this, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Yeah, he's given you an out, <laughs> right? As far as it depends on you, if possible, live peaceably with all. But even then, people will find you threatening if you're a follower of Christ. They will say that you're being judgmental when you're really not. Have you experienced that? But often the issue really isn't you. Rather, it's their own guilty conscience. They resent someone around them who challenges their lifestyle or reminds them that they're not right in the sight of God. So Jesus' words prepare us this morning. They, they help us to have the right expectations. Some, some people expect that knowing Christ will make life happier and easier. And yes, in some ways it does. But as followers of Christ, we are called to share in his sufferings. And that often includes facing hostilities from people who do not know Christ. As we prepare to come before the Lord's table, let us be reminded what the cross means for us. It means that our Lord has endured for, uh, for us the fire of God's judgment upon himself. It means that our Lord has suffered a baptism, and in doing so, we are spared. It means that our Lord was cut off and divided from his Father so that we may have peace with him. So as we come before the Lord's table, may we rejoice over this reality. And may we leave here this morning longing to bring the hope that we have to the people around us, including our family members. And may we pledge to speak the truth in love. And may we not lose heart when people treat us like they did our Lord. But maybe long for and live for the day that he returns, a day when he finally and truly brings lasting true peace to earth. And then we will see our Savior face to face. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. They are challenging. But we are thankful that in Christ Jesus we see that he endured um, what he was called to do, and that for our sakes we now have peace with you. Help us to understand where we are in this world. We're in a fallen world, a world, though, that, is, that you have promised to restore. May that give us strength and confidence as we love the world around us, as we love our family members and our neighbors. We pray, amen.